0: Good morning, Kent. Do we have them up? Yeah? Take your Bibles if you have them. And turn to Psalm 46. Going to be speaking about the subject, which kind of piggybacks off of what Chaplain Ken spoke about last week from the second couple of verses in Psalm 23, which is having confidence when we go through trouble. And we heard some testimony about God bringing people through trouble not only during this past week, but also dug 16 years ago. And it's a great testimony to be able to know that God is there for us when we do go through difficulties. And as we go through our look at Psalm 46, I'd like you to reflect on this thought, that as you go through your various difficulties in this life, you'll you'll be able to call upon the aspects of God's goodness described in this psalm, and also that you'll be able to rest completely in him. Okay, go ahead to the next slide. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in Psalm 46 from the English Standard Version of the Scriptures. The psalmist starts by saying, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams may clad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then he says, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes War ceases to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. And then he concludes by saying, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the bookend is repeating verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now as I studied this passage a little bit this past week, I noticed that this is Martin Luther's favorite psalm. How many of you knew that this was Martin Luther's favorite psalm? And uh, this is what Martin Luther had to say. I was in San Antonio, so I didn't get to print off my slides, so I'm reading some of them like you are. Martin Luther says, We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. And how many of you guys know that hymn that's based on the psalm, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Just the first verse goes, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek it to work us well, His craft and power are great. Uh, On earth is not his equal. Right? So Martin Luther wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, around 1527, which was right in the heart of the time when he was going through battles with the church over his new doctrine of justification by grace through faith, which became the hallmark for the rest of the Reformation to revisit the teachings of the church of the first century. And also it was during the time when England, England and Germany and France and the rest of Europe was beginning to go through what was known as the plague of the 16th century, which would take well over a third of the population in Europe during that time. But he he wrote that hymn to talk about God's very present help in trouble, the fact that God would give us strength when we need it. Now, as we go through Psalm 46, there are four metaphors for trouble in our life, and There are four metaphors that talk about different types of troubles that you and I will experience in our lives. Now, I think that if you look at your own life, you would probably say that some of the things that have happened in your life or maybe that you're experiencing right now would overlap between the four different types of things that he describes using the metaphors from uh, natural events going on in the world. So he starts off by talking about the earthquake he says, therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. This is talking about an earthquake. And when we're talking about trouble, I'm thinking this. You may think of it a little bit differently, but I'm thinking of a particular seminal event in your life that hits you out of nowhere that causes everything to be changed forever. So some examples of this would be those of us who know what happened on 9-11. Maybe we know somebody who was impacted by the events of September 11. Or maybe some of you were on active duty on September 11th. I wasn't, but I know some of you were. Maybe you were at the Pentagon. Maybe you know people that were in New York City on that day, and everything changed forever. Out of nowhere, a life-shattering earthquake event took, took effect. It caused everything to be changed forever. Some of you may have lost a child. and know in our congregation we have someone who lost a child very recently. That's an earthquake type event that shakes you to the core because it changes everything forever. Maybe you have a health diagnosis that comes upon you out of nowhere and it shakes things up forever. Someone who's a victim of identity theft, and I know people who talk about being victims of identity theft. It comes out of the blue, it's out of nowhere, unexpected, and it shatters everything in your world. An example of this in the scriptures would be Daniel. How many of you know the story of Daniel? When Daniel refused (coughs) to bow to the idol or the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, of course, was in the habit of praying three times a day towards Jerusalem. Daniel was in the habit of glorifying God. And Daniel was in the habit of being willing to pay the ultimate price if he had to. And we know that Daniel, as a result of his obedience to God, was cast into the lion's den, right? But we know that there was a fourth man in the fire when he was cast That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego earlier in Daniel. But Daniel, when he was cast into the lion's den, what happened? God shut the mouth of the lion because God was with him and God was present there during that period of crisis. And Daniel was not willing to turn his back upon his God because he knew that his God would sustain him. And he said that, I know my God is able to deliver me, but even if... My God chooses not to deliver me. I'm still going to obey God anyways. And so when we have an earthquake event take place in our lives, we have to decide whether or not we're going to obey God anyways and be willing to pay the ultimate cost. We have brothers and sisters who are over in the Middle East in countries like Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, even in Lebanon and other places like that who are daily having to make those kind of choices about which God they're going to serve. Are they going to serve the God, Jesus Christ, or are they going to compromise their faith in order to preserve their physical life? Those are earthquake type decisions. So that's a metaphor for a particular type of trouble in this life. Then we have a storm. Look here in verse 3, the first part. He says, though its waters roar and foam. This is talking about the fury of a storm. And Ken, alluded to this last week when he was talking about the disciples in Matthew chapter 14 remember Matthew chapter 14 Jesus of course was sound asleep in the boat and then all of a sudden the storm came and it shook their their world to the core because of the fury and because of the intensity now each one of us i think has a testimony of, of a particular period in our lives where we experience a storm. It may be an earthquake event, but when I'm thinking of a storm, I'm thinking of a theory of intensity that seems to drag on for a while. I had a basic training brigade chaplain when I was at Fort Jackson in 28 to 2010, about uh, six to eight years ago. Chaplain Lieutenant Colonel Greg Estes, who was my supervisor, he said, Jerry, when you go through these types of storms in life, you need to remember something. You need to remember from the scriptures the idea that this too shall pass. So whenever you go through a storm in life, you have to decide where your allegiance is because you have to trust God enough to know that eventually that storm is going to pass by. I was given a song back in 1983. I was uh, 16 years old. I was a sophomore in high school. My dad was in the United States Coast Guard. He was a warrant officer on Coast Guard cutters. We actually lived over in Glen Burnie. How many of you know where Glen Burnie is on the Maryland side? I was a, a sophomore in Old Mill Middle School. I became a Christian in 1979, 1980 timeframe. Attended a church by myself because I didn't have family go to church with me, Elverton Baptist Church. We had a song director who was actually a former professional singer in the nightclub circuit. His name was Rudy. And Rudy was a beautiful baritone professional singer who got miraculously saved like Doug was out of a, a life of alcohol. A life of partying and a life of just uh, giving his talent to the devil. And God miraculously saved him. So he became our song director at Elverton Baptist Church. And my dad got transferred to Juneau, Alaska in January 1983. So think Baltimore all the way to Juneau, Alaska, all the way across the country. And this gentleman named Rudy gave me a cassette tape because we didn't have CDs back then. Gave me a cassette tape with a song. He said, Jerry, this is a cassette tape with all my gospel songs. But the first song I want to give you, and he actually dedicated it to me, he said, I want to give you a song for the storms in Alaska. Because apparently he thought just by watching TV or whatever that there were a lot of storms in Alaska. And he gave me this song called When You Walk Through a Storm. And this is how the song goes. Elvis has sang the song. If some of you remember back when Elvis was going through a lot of his personal tragedies during the 60s, and into the 70s, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on, and then you can change the word from with hope in your hearts to with Christ in your hearts and you'll never walk alone you'll never walk alone. And I thought that always was a gospel song, but then I studied it a little bit and I found out that it was actually a Rodgers and Hammerstein song that was written back in 1945 in the the Broadway musical Carousel because Nettie Fowler was singing this song dedication to her friend Louise, whose husband Bill had committed suicide. And it was made famous by Jerry and the Pacemakers in 1963 in Great Britain. And now it is the anthem for the Liverpool soccer club over in the Premier League in England. But it's a great gospel song because it has a great thought. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark because at the end of the storm there is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your hearts and you'll never walk alone, you'll never walk alone. And that song I've carried with me through different storms in life for the last 34 years now. Hard to believe how fast the time goes by. From the time I was 16 to the time now where I just turned 50 a few months ago. So we have storms in life. We also have floods in life. The end of verse 3 he says, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. He's talking about floods And when we think scripturally about an example of a flood, probably the best one that we can possibly come up with would be Job. Remember Job was prosperous and the devil said that, if only I could have him, God, and if only I could take away everything from him, then I know that he's gonna curse you and he's not gonna serve you anymore. So God agreed to allow the devil to take away everything from him, right? He lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his family, he lost his uh, prominence, in his community. Everything was totally taken away from him. At the end of the day, in Job chapter 42, he says this, Job answered the Lord. This is after going through this entire period of suffering and his conversation back and forth with three friends who were not very good at comforting him. He says to God, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and will make it known to me I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then uh, he talks as well about the fact that naked came i out of my mother's womb and naked shall i return someday the lord he gives the lord he takes away but job's final conclusion was blessed be the name of the lord so a flood is when you have a lot of things happen to you all at once at least when i'm thinking about it so maybe it's because of a relationship breakdown that problems just come over you maybe because of a medical diagnosis you have several things come upon you all at once And I hate to use my dear wife Carrie as the best example of this in the last couple of years, but Ken mentioned it during the prayer time. Carrie being diagnosed at the same time with Crohn's and thyroid cancer all at once, and the manifold health problems she's had to deal with over the last two years, it's just overwhelming. So when I'm thinking of a flood, I'm thinking of a time where you're going through problems that are just overwhelming and they cause everything to just kind of go totally out of control in your life. So if you have a flood of problems in your life, You need to turn to the Lord as well. Then finally, we have the imagery of warfare in verses 6 through 11. Now, some scholars, I don't know if I totally agree with this, they believe that the historical reference that's talked about here in verses 6 through 11 to warfare is the event that's described in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 and also 2 Chronicles 32 and Isaiah 36 and 37 when Hezekiah was facing the hundred 85,000-man army of Sennacherib of Assyria. And the only thing that Hezekiah had left before the entire nation was overrun was the power of prayer where he could only do one thing, ask that God would deliver him and deliver the people because they had already taken 46 towns and villages surrounding Jerusalem. And so when God delivered him, that's when Hezekiah knew the power of the Lord. But it was only because That warfare that he was experiencing brought him to the very brink of extinction. Spiritually speaking, we know that we face spiritual warfare, right? Throughout the Old Testament, Israel faced physical warfare. We know that we face spiritual warfare. In Ephesians chapter six, we're told by the Apostle Paul, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says this, which I think is very important. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And then he describes what those armament features are. So we have these four metaphors for trouble within this passage of Psalm 46. And then we also have four descriptions of God's goodness. So as you go through an earthquake event, as you go through storms which have ferocious intensity, as you have a flood of things taken over you, and as you go through whatever it is, whether it be actual warfare on a physical level or spiritual warfare, you need to fall back upon God's goodness. And there are four things that he describes here within this passage. First of all, you need to understand that God is a refuge. God is a refuge. He says, back in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So what he's describing here is something that Israel understood full well when they were experiencing the opposition from the pagan nations that were surrounding them. God was their cover. God was their shadow. God was their only source of hope and so what he's getting at here is that when we go through difficulty whether it's an earthquake a storm a flood or warfare sometimes we are going to get to the bottom to the point where the only thing that we have left to hold on to is the power of god in our lives and i think that that is more difficult for us to understand being americans in a prosperous country which is pretty much known as being a a society with affluence and abundance than it would be to Christians who are in places throughout the world where they're facing persecution and they're not uh, prospering economically where they can't take everything for granted the way that we do. So God potentially may take you to the point in your life where the only thing that you have left to hold on to is the refuge that God can give you, the strength that only he can give you. And when that happens, you need to be ready to call Upon him. And he's also described as a river in the first part of verse 4. Okay? The first part of verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And there's an analogous passage in the New Testament. If you go to the story of the woman at the well, where Jesus miraculously does some great work in the life of this woman. In John chapter 4. When Jesus asked this woman for a drink. Jesus says. In verse 15. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. Will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. Welling up to eternal life. And then the woman said to him. Sir give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then we're told that uh, in verse 39, he talks about something very similar because the woman's testimony. So the idea of a river is talking about the emblem of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And when you drink the Spirit of God through your absorbing of the nutrients of the Word of God, and when you have that power flowing in and through you, it will give you the sustenance that you need in order to be able to survive the troubles that you're going through. So the idea of a river, thats talking talk about the, the power of God and the presence of God flowing in and through your life. And that's why Jesus was trying to teach the woman at the well that if she would partake of the water that she would be offered by him, that she would never be thirsty again. So that's the idea here in Psalm 46, that we have a river that has an overflowing abundant source of spiritual water for us. And then we're told here at the end of verse four and into verse five that God is resident among us in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the earthquake, in the midst of the flood, in the midst of the warfare. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help when morning dawns, let's talk about the presence of God being there with us whenever we go through trouble. Now the metaphor, I think, goes back to the Garden of Eden and also goes forward into the Book of Revelation at the end, when we are present forever in all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the metaphor is talking about the eternal principle of God being present from the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis all the way, to eternal glory in the book of Revelation but applying it to our own personal everyday life it it means that when we go through these troubles we have a God who is resident with us we have a God who is there walking and journeying with us how many of you guys have ever seen that picture that's been portrayed graphically of the footprints in the sand the idea is that when you only see one set of footprints, that's when God is actually carrying you. And I think there are going to be moments in our lives where we have to just call upon him and allow him to carry us through because of the fact that we can't do it ourselves any longer. Now, of course, the challenge when we go through trouble is to recognize that God still is resident among us. And that gets back to the concept of why is there so much evil and why is there so much suffering in the world. And as I tell my patients at the hospital, That's above my pay grade. That's certainly something that I cannot answer. Why does God choose to allow someone to live and someone to die in war? Why does God allow somebody who's a cancer patient to be able to endure the treatment and to be able to survive and someone else may die from cancer? I don't have the answer to those questions. I can just tell you this, that when you go through trouble... God is going to be in your midst and his grace is going to be sufficient for you. That's what the apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He gave the litany of all the experiences that he had to go through, including being stoned and left for dead, including going through shipwreck and imprisonment and being famined and all other things that he had to experience. And he said, hey, God's God's strength is perfected in my weakness. His grace is sufficient for me because that's what he told me. Do we trust God enough to realize that he is resident among us regardless of what we're experiencing? Then finally, we're told in the portion of Psalm 46 when it deals with warfare specifically that God is the ruler. We're told that the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. And then the rest of it talks about how God is the one who's going to make wars cease to the end of the earth. Now, how many of you guys are paying attention to what's going on in our country right now? I mean, it is pretty divisive, isn't it? We see the protesters in the streets. We see what's taking place in the U.S. Senate with the confirmation hearings for the cabinet. It's just back and forth. The social media posts are just somewhat over the top, aren't they? We see, I think, a sense of warfare through words in our country right now. But we know that God is the ultimate ruler of the affairs of man. And because of that, we can have confidence that God is eventually going to allow his purposes to win out in the final analysis. We have to trust that, though. I think a lot of times we see what's going on in our world, and we think that we have to take charge. But here in Psalm 46, he says, no, God is the one who's in total control. And he is the one who's going to bring the end of the desolations on the earth and Cease all these wars that are going on and he's the one who's going to shatter all the anxiety and all the problems So what do we need to do? We need to do two things as I get ready to wrap up and prepare us for communion We need to do two things. We need to reflect on his goodness as noted here in verses 7 and 11 We're told that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress Now I think as we look at these two aspects of God's goodness, we see two very important things. First of all, when he's talking about the Lord of hosts, he's talking about the fact that God has actual power in your life to bring about his purpose for your life. And sometimes he's going to do that through the different types of troubles that he brings you through. God will not be thwarted because he is the Lord of hosts. And then the God of Jacob, that's talking about the fact that he keeps his covenant promises to you. And this was something that the Old Testament saints had to keep in mind over and over again when they experienced difficulty. The fact that God, who was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, was the God who kept his promises. And we have the same God that the patriarchs in the Old Testament had. So we have a God who keeps his promises. And so if you go through difficulty, I challenge you to fall back upon the staggering promises that are contained in the Word of God, and just trust God enough to know that he is in total control and he's going to bring about what he wants to bring about in your life. And then that's going to cause you to relax. That'll cause you to rest in him. He says here, to be still and know that I am God. That's what Martin Luther was able to do during these trials he experienced during the beginning stages of the Reformation. In the Hebrew, the idea is to stop striving. Now that's difficult for a lot of us, isn't it? I know I use the analogy quite often. Those of us that are wearing the uniform, what do we have to do in order to get promoted to the next rank? We have to compete with other people. We have to get good evaluations. We have to look great in front of boards. We have to make ourselves Presentable to people above us so that they think good things about us. And so we tend to want to strive. We want to tend to uh, try to be achievers, type A's, which is okay, but we need to understand that we need to keep all of that in perspective and allow God to be in control of the process. And so what he's saying here is don't be so anxious about everything. Just stop striving. Just relax and rest in Him. Ken mentioned Philippians chapter 4 last week, right? Be anxious for nothing, but by everything, with prayer and supplication, with an attitude of thanksgiving, that your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses human understanding, all human understanding, that is what's gonna guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you need to find a way to relax in this stressed out age. And maybe a good way to do it would be to say, I'm gonna take a break from Facebook for a week. Would that help us all? I don't know. But then you say, well, then I'm behind on the news, right? Because what's going to happen this week if I decide to turn the clicker off? My chaplain at Fort Belvoir, in fact, my chaplain partner, uh, he said him and his family got rid of the TV and it's reduced their anxiety already. I don't know if that's the answer or not, but we need to find ways to relax and just rest in him, don't we? So reflect on his goodness and then relax, rest in him. Stop striving in your own strength. And I wrap up with this thought by Dr. John Piper Piper says what the text says is that the life revolutionary impact of God's supremacy in the world and his inevitable triumph over the nations and the coming of his glorious kingdom of righteousness and peace the impact of this awesome reality doesn't just hit us and hold us and shape us unless we become still and quiet before God God hits home in the stillness If you want your life to be significant, you've got to stop running and stop scurrying about and turn off the TV and the radio and get alone and be quiet and let the never-ending joy and God's universal triumph take hold of you and change your life. Be still and know that I am God.